Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here, streaming online via the podcast or live on your radio from 12 to 1. This is Out of the Box. Every week I sit down with one guest and look at the stories and songs that have shaped their life. I'm coming to you from land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and my guest is joining me remotely from Bundjalung country. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that both of us are coming to you from unceded Aboriginal land. We pay our respects to Gadigal and Bundjalung elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by Macario D'Souza. Mac is a master storyteller, a skill that's shown its face in his directing and his music. You might know him as the guy behind Kid Mac, and he directed the documentary Bra Boys, and yes, now is about to drop the film Six Festivals. But Mac's life is a lot bigger than those things, and today we're going to walk through its chronology and stop to look at the moments that have brought him to this new film. Mac, thanks for joining me. Hey man, thanks for having me. So let's wind back to the very beginning, Mac. Your story starts in Maroubra. When you think about what it looked like when you were little, what do you see? It was a concrete jungle. We lived in a housing estate that was, um, you looked out the window and it was just red bricks as far as the eye could see. We're only, you know, a couple of kilometres away from, from the ocean. So, you know, walking through that urban jungle and you got to this incredible kind of beach and, and beautiful place the Gadigal people in um, Maroubra and yeah we just uh we spent all day every day outside until the street lights came on and got called in whether it was playing soccer on in a back park or you know surfing and you know just having a good time as kids it was a very memorable childhood. So what was your family shaped like did you have siblings that you could play with as well? Yeah I had two older sisters Glenda who was my elder sister and Ingrid uh, we're all three years apart and um, we were super close growing up. I looked up to my sisters and still do. They were, I guess, you know, probably my first heroes, so to speak. And um, they were super close together and I tended to gravitate towards my best friends and, you know, hang with the boys because they were so tight until later in life when we got closer. But, um, you know, my parents were uh, immigrants from Brazil. They um, migrated over to Australia in the 70s. You know, there was um, job opportunities uh, back in those days they wanted a better life for the kids, um, you know, and uh, South Americans settled by the coast like they do. You know, it's um, very similar culture to Australian culture. It's, you know, it's it's football, it's beer, it's music, it's um, barbecues. And um, Australia made sense to my parents. And um, they had my, my elder sister uh, in Sydney and then moved back to Brazil, had Ingrid, and then moved back to Australia, had me, moved back to Brazil uh, for a couple of years and then settled in in Australia by the time I started school in kindergarten. So yeah, um, Catholic parents, you know, small little home, but um, a lot of love and and good times. So you spent a little chunk of your childhood in Brazil as well then. Do you remember that at all? Uh, Yeah, I have have vague memories from when I was about one till about five. Um, It's funny because I was born and raised in Sydney, but I remember starting school in kindergarten um, with not speaking a word of English. I remember the one memory I did have is coming over to the school and uh, it must have been midterm and got got taken to the classroom and the teacher stood up and just pointed towards the classroom and everyone was, all the kids were sitting on the floor and I went and sat down on her chair 
in front of the kids and everyone just started laughing and pointing at me and, and sort of traumatized me. I had no idea what she was asking me to do, but oh. that was a that was a, a memory I had and um when I first started school and yeah, it was I do remember our place in Brazil and just having a lot of family around, like massive uh, number of cousins and I had like seven aunties and, you know, well, a couple hundred cousins, so it was it was good times. And when you talk about your parents moving back and forth a couple of times, did they have jobs that, you know, allowed them to work internationally? No, it was quite the opposite. It was uh, very working class and I think, if anything, they probably struggled to settle in Australia and, um, you know, my mum probably struggled with, both of them struggled with the language for a couple of years and I think there was a bit of push and pull between mum and dad as to where they wanted to settle. Um, mm. You know, mum was very close with her family and her sisters and, and my grandmother and um, so there was a lot of, you know, trying to work out what, where's best for them and, and money was tight for our family and so, you know, those trips obviously were tricky but I think for the greater good of the future of the kids, they decided to settle in Australia um, against all the other um, family of Brazil being around to support. I think that's what made it super tough for my mum. Mm. You called your sisters your heroes earlier, Mac. Is that because they were holding your hand through this and maybe helping you get settled? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I remember from when starting kindergarten, my mum and dad had two to three jobs each. You know, dad was a dental technician. And then he had a part-time cleaning job after work. So he'd, he'd leave home at 6 a.m. and, you know, go straight to another cleaning job at 6 p.m. until about 11 p.m. So I wouldn't see much of my dad during the week. And mum would join him at night for that second cleaning job and she'd have other cleaning jobs during the day. So I essentially got raised by my sisters. You know, they, they would get me ready for school. They would make meals. Um, we'd come home and they'd have cooked meals and we'd all chip in to clean the kitchen up and they were great cooks as well and um we all had a sweet tooth so there was always a bit of dessert after dinner (laughs) and um and we'd end the night with with a with a movie you know having a movie night and that was that was special to me I always kind of looked up to them and you know we kind of grew through through that culture of the 90s and you know like just pop culture and you know clothing and video games and like hip-hop and rock and it, it it sort of shaped who I am and also very grateful to them to have taught me a lot of uh, lessons that I now, you know, I took for granted then, but I really appreciate now. Just the basics of treating women and, you know, respecting women. And I I feel like I I got taught more lessons on how to be a man from the women in my life than I did from the the men in my life. And you're now an artist and a director, Mac. I'm wondering if those avenues were clear to you when you were little or if that's something your parents encouraged because it kind of sounds like maybe the consumption of all that pop culture through your sisters brought you here. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I think um, that, that era of pop culture in the 90s is probably the biggest inspiration, I would say, because we, we ate it up, you know, like we... <laughs> we every Saturday morning we're watching Rage and every other time it was, it was MTV and just whatever America was feeding Australia we were eating it up and um you know my parents were right into music and I, I remember mum and dad when they were in a good mood and you know it was Bob Marley or it was Elvis you know it was ABBA um and they'd dance around and so we grew up to a lot of a lot of music dad played the guitar he taught me how to play the guitar he played Everybody Hurts, R.E.M. Um, on repeat, which, you know, just sort of sunk in. I think it was the first song I actually learned on the guitar. So that, you know, that sort of idea of music associated with good times always stuck with me. And, and my pop culture obsession with my sisters also was good memory. So music to me was always a positive thing. And um, that came into play later in life for sure. And I guess I was such a, uh, I guess, like easily inspired type kid where 
I was a bit of a dreamer and um, everything I saw, I wanted to have a crack at. You know, I'd kind of like look at that and go, I think I can do that. And then I'd work out how to try and do it. I never knew where it would lead me. I just knew I had a creative flair. Uh, growing up, I wanted to be a professional footballer, as in soccer. Um, from my you know, Brazilian roots, it kind of came natural and something I worked hard at. And um, yeah, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer because it kind of seemed the only kind of professional job at that time that was pushed towards you know school kids until I started, you know, I think when computers were a thing, I started learning how to, you know, muck around with programs and ed- edit movies and make make beats. And I think that was a game changer for me. And um, one time my sister had gone overseas and came back with this camcorder and, um, you know, that was game over. She would, you know, not be home. I'd steal it from a wardrobe and <laughs> play around with that and just film my mate surfing. And yeah, just it all sort of snowboard from there. Well, yeah, let's come back to the camcorder in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to stay right here in this moment. You've started off with Stand By Me. Tell me about this one. Yeah, Stand By Me by Benny King was, um, it's such a nostalgic song for me. Um, It's the soundtrack to one of my favourite films, Stand By Me, of which my sisters and I would have one of our movie nights with, you know, and the fact that it was a coming of age uh, story, it just did something for me. It just really triggered something inside me. It made me feel a certain way. And, you know, that would stick with me forever. I think it was movies like that that really kind of triggered something in my brain and say, you know, rather than just enjoy it for what it was as a film, it was like, I wonder how that film was made. I wonder what those actors, how they prepared. I wonder how that director chose to frame that certain composition in that way. And so I just questioned so much of that film and that song that was attached to it for years to come and like I said music was such a positive influence on me that it also reminds me of the good times growing up with my sisters and um and still to this day lyrically you know that that song resonates with my um relationship with my sisters and you know always being there for each other and we've been through hell and back and you know I think it's it's stand by me something we'll always we'll always stand by. It's Ben E. King on FBI Radio 94.5. The song's called Stand By Me, and it was chosen by Mac D'Souza. No, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Ben E. King, it was Stand By Me on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio. My name is Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with Macario D'Souza, who is an artist and a filmmaker. And before we jumped into that song, Mac, you mentioned your camcorder and filming surfing videos growing up. When did you start surfing? I started surfing at high school. Um, it was such a big transition from primary school to high school, you know, not just the the move itself from one school to the next with the bigger kids but just culturally as well like I said it was you know I think we was mid mid 90s um and it was like a mixture of different kids from different schools where I was from in primary school everything was very urban and hip-hop and there was a lot of gangs and you know like it was sports and high school we had this influx of like what we called wax heads and more Anglo white kids that was new to me at, at that point and but what I loved about it was the introduction of this surf culture and um, I started surfing when I was about 14 or so and fell in love with the whole culture and I actually remember as a kid, you know, like because we were 
didn't have the money to buy the clothes with brands um, that I would I would actually rip off old Adidas logos off shorts and like try and stick on Billabong ones on there and just try and you know try try and fit in. Um, but yeah, it was um, it came with its own you know music culture as well and and there was a lot of surf movies at the time. Like there was a famous filmmaker called Taylor Steele who made a lot of surf movies and his approach was just crazy surf action with amazing music like the latest music of the time and so I wanted to mimic that you know when my sister brought that camcorder back from America she would leave the house I would steal it and then buy you know a few of my mates would chip in nine bucks to get a a tape and we'd we'd film uh surfing and luckily for me I had some of the my mates were some of the best surfers coming up and became some of the best big wave surfers in the world and so we'd get awesome action and film all the parties and everything in between and I'd go away and Put, it, put some uh, edits together and just put some of our favourite songs to it and then we'd have little screening nights and just have a laugh and just have the time of our lives and that was, uh, that was I think, the start of that addictive feeling to, like, go away for weeks and create something and then present it to someone and get a reaction. Mm. That, that, to me, was just something that I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about surfing. I feel like you're not so much talking about the actual practice of being out in the water or the athleticism. You very much talk about the culture and the community. Why do you think that that community was so addictive to you? Why do you think you were so drawn to that? I think it was the characters first and foremost. I was really taken back by some of the characters that, you know, we grew up in in, in, in Maroubra, like just colourful characters, hilarious, just things you wouldn't even see in movies, you know, and it was always a good time. There's always laughter. There was always girls around and obviously, you know, young teenage boy were riding the girls and it was just, it was good times, you know, and it was a, a way to, it, everyone was seemed to be against the grain and a little bit, you know, anti, you know, like rules and, and it was just, it was like fuck the system. And for me at the time, I thought that was exciting as a young teenager. It was, it was a world away from what, I had been raised in at home, so I kind of enjoyed that dynamics of, you know, you know, quiet home life and then, you know, wild street life. Are you talking about the Bra Boys when you talk about that community? Yeah, look, we, we grew up in Maroubra and, yeah, as, as you know, um, Bra Boys are a community of brotherhood surfers that were born and raised in Maroubra. Some of the older boys, probably 10, 12 years older than me, started it, you know, back in the, I want to say, 70s or 80s and... They used to get a, a tattoo to symbolise, you know, their friendship together and, and people always saw it as a gang and it's it's still got that stigma. But it, the reality is it's just like any group of friends. It just happens to be a big group who now have a big media presence around the world because of the characters within it. We're also some pro athletes and um, and they share these same tattoos. So, yeah, that was um, looking up to the older boys as a young teenager. You kind of wanted to mimic them. You wanted to be like them one day. You know, they used to... It used to be a bit of an unsung rule where you, you would, you know, you'd out-party, you'd out-drink, you'd, you'd out-root, you'd out-fight your mates and whatever it took to, to be the man. And, um, you know, looking back now, particularly with two young daughters, it's kind of like it was all a bit of bravado that sort of mm. probably a little pointless, but it, it's, regardless, that's how we grew up and it took, it took a while for me to work out right from wrong. And I think luckily for me, I also had, you know, my inspirations and, and influences at home, which kept me on, on, the, on the straight. Mac, it sounds like this period of your life has been so formative to the person you've become, whether it's those older boys and the bra boys or the kind of media you were making at the time and going away and making films and getting addicted to the practice of working hard on those and then showing them to people. Were you also making music around this time? 
Yeah, so there wasn't too many of us at that time, particularly in Maroubra, that were, you know, tapping into that creative world. Obviously, we were all obsessed with hip-hop at the time, and we started, you know, writing rap songs, and one of my best mates, Nate Ford, he was right into it too. And the thing, the difference was, Nate was a big Cook Islander guy, and he grew up in Matraville, around the corner from where I grew up in Hillsdale near Maroubra, where the primary school era was more, you know, like I said, urban jungle, you know, there was more gangs, and it was more hip-hop, and then we meshed with this surf Anglo world later in life. And so he came from my old school world and that's why I connected with him. He's like my big brother, he's a couple of years older than me. We we made music under 377 and that was our, our first little duo. That was um, a bus route actually that took us from where we, we lived down to the beach. So we called it that. Um, essentially <laughs> stopped from my bus stop to his bus stop and down to the beach, which connected us. And um, we just mimicked everything that we heard from America, you know, whether it was NWA and... Uh, Tupac and Biggie so it was it was tryhards trying to be gangster rappers and um we rapped about being bra boys and where we're from and I think when you first get into rap you resort to what you've heard up until that point and it takes a while for you to finesse and actually find your voice and actually find you know content to, to write about so yeah and then when it came to making beats I, I got obsessed with that and started putting out beats and, and and our raps over it and we'd have little shows locally and just have a good time and we did, we felt like we were creating our own little NWA within Maroubra, it was hilarious. So you're making films at this time, you're making music at this time. With all of these kind of interests in the mix, were you ever looking forward and thinking about what the future looked like for you or what you might want to do? Not really, I just really enjoyed doing what I was doing and being young you just did it all, you know, and it, it wasn't until the back end of high school where I was, you know, starting to work out what I was going to do whether I was going to pursue a, you know, a soccer career, whether I was going to go to uni, and if I did uni, what course I was going to do. So I kind of wanted to choose something that allowed me to further explore all mediums, particularly mm. film and music. And so I chose to do a fine arts degree, which had a lot of electives in, in both music production and film. In a couple of minutes, I want to dig further into your fine arts degree and the things that you did explore through that. But first, we're going to jump into a song by Grinspoon. Why did you pick this one? Grinspoon Just Ace is a song that represents that chapter of my life. When we were 13, 14 years old, it was 1997, their record was big at that time, and the older Bra Boys put on what I feel like was one of the first festivals, aside from like Big Day Out, uh, that I can remember. It was called Surf Skate Slam, and it was in the car park of Maru Beach, and the lineup was insane. It was like Friends of Rom, Grinspoon sprung monkey and silver chair who were only starting out you know back then and um this was like a coming of age event for us um, grinspoon came down to promote the event at the local surf shop that week and it was a pie eating contest and you know <laughs> they were sponsored by arnett sunglasses and we just remember looking up to them and just loving them and my best mate robbie was in their music video for just ace it was a coming of age event for us where it was you know our first concert first festival it was like our first kiss first fight first vomit you know it was just it was just ace and we loved grinspoon and that's um and and it's come full circle for me having phil jameson involved in my latest film but that's that's this song has holds a close place in my heart amazing the song is called just ace it's by grinspoon and you're hearing it right here on out of the box on fbi radio 94.5 
Just Ace. It was Grinspoon on FBI Radio 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Mac D'Souza, who just before jumping into that song, talked about his fine arts degree and this kind of desire to explore different mediums. I want to focus on film for a little bit, which is something that you did kind of dabble in during that degree. What kind of movies did you make in that time? So I was second year at university and um, it was an arts degree. So there was a lot of quirky, out-of-the-box, installation-type weird shit that just didn't, like, it didn't excite me. But um, again, I think my obsession with pop culture back in the 90s was coming into play and I was looking at making stuff that was interesting, uh, I guess, commercial and something that would, I guess, pique interest of people, not just in, in our local area, but globally as well. And so I always knew that we had a unique community in Maroubra and the Bra Boys tribe, I guess, was something that I feel like there was a story there to tell. I made a short documentary. We interviewed a whole bunch of the boys and, you know, just about what it meant to be a Bra Boy and, and surfing and, and, you know, sticking by each other and the whole, you know, ethos of Maroubra. And uh, it was one of my major works for, for that fine arts degree. And I presented it and it just, it was just crickets once it finished. It was just no reaction and it failed miserably. Um, Do you think that's because of the way that the film was made or because of the content? I don't know. I think, I think like I said, it was an art degree. So they weren't expecting a commercial 20-minute short doco. And maybe mm. the content was a bit in your face for them. Um, but, you know, it went on to be the the pilot that got us um, a whole bunch of interest and investment to make uh, a feature-length documentary called The Bra Boys. Mm. And so for the next three or four years, you know, trying to finish a degree while this project just kept snowballing, you know, like we were following the stories of, you know, the Abidans, uh, Sonny Abidan, who is the older brother. He directed the film. I co-directed it with him and edited it. And uh, Michael Lawrence, uh, who was one of my mentors, he produced the film. So between the three of us, we sort of worked closely together to make sure that the story was something everyone was proud of. And like I said, mm. there was, you know, some uh, unfortunate incidents that went down, like a murder trial. There was the race riots. Um, you know, every time we thought the film was done, something else would happen, we'd cover it. And we'd been following all this action for so many years between myself and an older brow boy who was a uh, cinematographer as well, Brooks Sylvester. And so we had all this gold and we just, it kept snowballing and becoming bigger a bigger thing um and i guess there was a point where russell crowe had taken over the local football club the south sydney rabbitohs who we all loved and one of my best mates john sutton was playing first grade and we got a call from russell saying hey it's russell crowe here and, and uh, we thought it was a prank and we just hang up on him <laughs> and um you know sutto would tell us hey russell's been trying to get in touch with you and we thought oh shit it's for real was he wouldn't talk about? Why is Russell calling us? Yeah. Anyway, long story short, he, he'd seen, you know, I think there was an Australian story on the evidence on the ABC and um, he was, he'd heard we were making the doco and wanted to see how, how it was and we set up a meeting. We had a rough cut at the time and um, we showed him. He really liked it and um, there was this like temp voiceover in the doco and he said, who's that uh, narrator? He's terrible. And we said, yeah, we know. It's a, it's a temp. What about you? How about you do it? And he just said, all right, cool, I'll do it. And um, I guess, you know, he had an interest in the in the story, potentially to turn it into a drama down the track that he would direct one day. But he also just loved the story and he was all about what we were about. And so that took the project to a whole 
other levels. So by the time we released the film, this thing had 10 years of press, you know, between all the things that mm-hmm. had happened um, in real life to Russell's involvement, to the premiere where we got, you know, there was threat threatens there were going to be drive-bys and shootings at the premiere and all this press that just fed the success of this film. And before we knew it, it was the highest grossing documentary in Australian history, which for me was was baffling, you know, like here, here I was making this little doco in my mum's apartment in my little bedroom, um, still trying to finish my degree and um, we've got to... Well, that's that's what I was going to ask because, like, to this day it still is one of the highest grossing documentaries in Australian history and it coincided with uni, which I didn't realise until you said that. Does that mean you were just, like, a little baby when you were making that? How old were you? Yeah, so when by the time the film came out, I think I was, like, 23 or 24 maybe. Yeah, 23 and... Finishing um, uni and you've just finished a project with Russell Crowe. Yeah, it was nuts. It really <laughs> was. And you know what? The weirdest thing was it just seemed normal and easy at the time because things just rolled into the next thing. It just happened mm. that way. When I look back at it now, I realise how lucky I was and that how fortunate I was for the opportunity, you know, to be able to be involved in the story, to be able to be part of that success. And now I know how people can work their entire careers to try and get a hit like that. Mm. And I've been chasing that same high uh, ever since. And <laughs> part of chasing that high, you know, sometimes it doesn't quite get there, but at least you're hustling so hard that your quality is always there. Mm. And so, you know, that opened up doors and Russell took me under the wing and he became a mentor for me for, for years to come. And, you know, I'd always appreciate his support and he sort of showed me the ropes. And so I guess I kicked down the door in an early stage and I was there to stay and it was just a matter of like making sure I stuck around and mm. had my head on. It's so interesting hearing you say that, Mac. I was talking to someone the other day and they said that when you achieve the things that you really, really wanted when you're little, those goals kind of stop becoming goals or big achievements and just become like stepping stones and maybe you don't, you know, see them as these massive achievements anymore. They're just like, as you said, part of kind of rolling through and they lead to the next thing. Back to the movie, Russell Crowe's voice isn't the only voice to be heard across the movie. Your music is actually in there as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was just that the early stage of um, mucking around with hip-hop with my, my boy Nate Ford um, as 377. It made sense that two bra boys who were making music, you know, wrote a couple of tracks for the film. And, um, you know, we really enjoyed that process. It was a, a platform to, to launch, you know, music seriously. And that's when I really started to consider music as a career. And we signed a little record deal at that stage. I guess there was a buzz with the film that it made sense for a label to get behind some music behind it. And um, yeah, it was it was the first time we were really getting into studios and recording properly. And um, most premieres we'd throw around the world, we'd, we'd get up and perform after it. We started off the back of that, getting some really cool tours with the um, some of the Aussie hip hop acts who were doing some great things at the time. Um, Bliss and Esso particularly were, were guys that, you know, took us under the wing and gave us a lot of support acts, which I'm also grateful for. And we started a great early friendship with those guys. And yeah, I just thought, shit, okay, cool. We're, we're now, we've got this amazing successful documentary out and our music's getting played everywhere and we're creating a bit of a fan base. So um, I kind of wanted to hustle on both fronts for the next few years. We're going to jump into a song that's not by you. It's actually by Scribe. Why did you pick this one? So Scribe, at the time, like I said, Nath was from the Cook Islands. I was from Brazil. We were both, you know, dark-skinned and everyone else doing hip-hop in the country seemed to be Anglo-white guys. Um, and Scribe... For being from New Zealand, it felt local and he dropped this hit, you know, Not Many, which we, we just loved. And it just really kind of inspired me to 
pursue it even further it just kind of felt a bit more home um and and everything he was rapping about and that song will forever stick with me and it's something that um was authentic accessible um and i wanted to approach my music in a similar way and um this one comes back full circle with my new film that we'll talk about in a sec too <laughs> so many full circle moments this is a beautiful episode about <laughs> the box uh this song is called not many by scribe chosen by mac d'souza like this this show is out of the box. My guest is Mac D'Souza, the chooser of that song. And before we played it, Mac, we were starting to talk about a period in your life where you were pursuing your love for music and film in a meaningful way. I want to talk about another love of yours, which is your wife. Sorry, that's such an awkward segue. <laughs> but I feel like this love story kind of parallels your career. So we're going to stay here anyway. Where did you meet your wife? Uh, I met Amy 2006 um in june and the reason why i know that is because it was the world cup um i'm football mad and it so happened that you know her, she, her dad is french and he's football mad so she's growing up in that you know every four years you watch france and you put your colors on whereas for us it was brazil and australia was in the world cup that year and they were robbed by italy in the quarterfinals and we watched it down at um circular key on the big screen with everyone else um and uh yeah we'd met First at Coogee Bay Hotel, um, some friend, mutual friends had connected <laughs> us and um, yeah, we hit it off and the reason why I knew she was the girl for me was because the night we met, we hit it off over soccer and also the great hip hop debate of who was the better rapper between Biggie and Tupac and I was like, this woman is for me. Wait, what's the answer? Well, we I think she was agreeing that we both loved Biggie and the fact that we loved his storytelling and Tupac as great as he was was probably a little too aggressive for our you know, for our liking. But my pick was Biggie. Can't remember what she said. I just yeah, I was just her, her eyes got me and I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> um Yeah, and then so for the next few years, you know, like we just had a great time dating. We we travelled the world together and, you know, Everywhere I was on tour, she would meet up with me and we'd have some, you know, good times. And yeah, I just kind of, I just knew she was everything about her, um, her morals, um, you know, the, her outlook on life, her family structure. It, it, it sort of, it, it aligned with everything of mine. She was there from the beginning, you know, I, I remember clear as day, we were all hung over in a, in a living room, all me and my mate, Mark Matthews, lived in the same house. It was a halfway house, all the boys would hang there and coming up with names for our act for Nathan and I 377 she was part of that process and then you know I moved on to a solo career as Kid Mac and um she was there by my side every single time you know and the, the shows that I would play in front of five people and then you know 10 people that were all just my mates and then you know the crowds got bigger the shows got bigger the festival slots got better you know started getting great support acts around the country and then a lot of international tours which was incredible and um I guess it, it started getting tricky in that you know, particularly the type of music I was doing was really upbeat party music. And so we'd go on tour and you'd drink before the show 
and you'd, you'd go hard and if you had a great show you'd celebrate and drink to the you know hours of the morning if you had a terrible show you'd drink your sorrows away till hours in the morning <laughs> and you'd get on that you know early flight because they were the cheapest flights and you'd have to make um two as, as cheap as possible so there was a profit get home sick hungover moody that was the tricky part where you know that's never really going to work if you're trying to have a, a serious relationship um and so for me all I ever wanted in life was to be a good father, a good husband and own a house that we could raise a good family in. And so anything that fed that dream would stick around. Anything that was getting in the way would have to evaluate how I would approach it. And music became one of those things where it started to become, you know, more of a hindrance than anything else. And I started to fall out of love with it a little bit. I started to get, you know, a bit jaded on the industry and, and just uh, the partying on the road wasn't great for my mental state and so I just slowed I slowed the touring down um we got married 2014 and I literally a week after getting married I took off to south by southwest and then we did a a tour in Canada and California I was gone for about three months and then we went to Singapore and Liverpool in the UK and then I came back and had a break and um, by the time I had my firstborn aura in 2016 i basically had stopped doing shows i just it was it was time to really sort of focus on my priorities of of being that father and that that husband that i wanted to be i haven't played a show for years now but it's um i've been writing music i've been releasing music and now that the kids are listening to my music and asking questions i'm really keen to get back on the road and, and show them that side of my life you're a father and a husband. You're also a filmmaker during this time. Tell me about the movies that you made after Bra Boys. So Bra Boys led me to um, a next project with Russell Crowe called South Side Story. It was a six-part um, documentary on the South Sydney Rabbitohs on the ABC. Off the back of that, um, I did a few other TV shows just as, you know, sort of a contract work. And then my next project was Fighting Fear. It was essentially a follow-up to Bra Boys with two of my best mates, Richie and Mark two big wave surfers and one was a UFC fighter that went on to win two actor awards which was incredible you know best direction in a documentary and best cinematography in a doco so that was 2013 I was chuffed that was you know such a great <laughs> gong for me um went on to make another doco called um Pooh Bear uh, Afraid of Forever he's a prolific songwriter in the US um he's written hits for everyone from Pink to Usher to all, a lot of Justin Bieber's hits yeah incredible story we got to launched that in the in in LA which was incredible you know I made a couple of other docos in the music and surfing space but I guess I really wanted to um make a move from docos over to drama and um I sort of worked for a couple of years on focusing on that and trying to make that um become a reality and you do have a new movie coming out that I want to talk about soon what song would you like to play to get us there Mac so Helen Back uh, is a track that uh, Bakar, a, a UK artist, um, I just fell in love with this song because same year I got married was the same year my parents divorced. You know, it was a, it was it was such a traumatic kind of, you know, my whole world had shifted and changed. And um, but at the same time, I just got married. It was this whole bittersweet moment. My wife stood, you know, she stood by me throughout that whole period for the next couple of years. We had two beautiful daughters over the next few years we started two businesses you know my my business got hammered through covid and just felt like we've been through so much we've been through hell and back and this song was actually the song that was playing on our playlist in the hospital when my second born melody was born and it just became our little family tune um and 
Helen back is is on repeat in this household. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to Helen back just to find peace. Man, I thought I had everything. I was lonely. Now you're my everything. I was lonely. car on FBI Radio 94.5. The track was called Hell and Back and it was chosen by Mac D'Souza, my guest on the show, a director, artist and the man behind the film that drops this time next week, Six Festivals. We haven't talked about the movie yet, Mac. Can you run me through what it's about? Six Festivals is a coming of age drama. It was um this last segment, there's going to be a lot of full circles. A lot of the anecdotes I told you from earlier. Let's tie up some loose back. ends. We have to tie them up. And that's where this film <laughs> is. I'm so passionate about it because it does tap into everything I've just talked about. So I loved Coming of Age Stories, Stand By Me, The City of Gods, The Lahanes, all those films. I wanted to make a coming of age drama. And this one happens to be set in the backdrop of music festivals. And music is obviously a massive passion of mine, particularly festivals. Three best friends, they're 16 two guys, one girl, and um, they sneak into their first ever music festival, have the time of their lives, get caught by the police in the end, and it gets um, they get questioned and it comes out that one of them has a pending illness, and it's the first time the other two hear about it. And there and then they decide to make a pact to go to as many music festivals in the few months he has left. And it's all shot at real festivals around Australia over a period of about six months um, in the film, and it's all told through the prisons of the festivals. and. Um, it's uh it's something that I've been working on for the last five years. I co-wrote it and directed it. And um, we've got a cinema release yet next week on the 11th of August and Paramount Plus, a streamer, has taken it on for August the 25th um, in Australia and then uh, the rest of the world soon after. And it's just got some of Australia's most amazing bands cameoing themselves. You know, it's sort of that idea of tapping into that network that all those years I spent on the road touring and you know, working on visuals with artists and helping develop their sound and their brand um, came back full circle where they came involved in the film and I'm forever grateful for that. And mm. it's something that I wanted to make super authentic. So I sort of added my documentary flavour and a lot of it feels super raw and authentic and, and you know, sort of in your face and gritty. And uh, it touches on all those coming of age kind of growing pains that, that I experienced as a teenager. So, yeah, I'm excited for people to see it and um, there's a particular scene in there with one of the characters called Marley. She's an up-and-coming rapper played by um, an Indigenous uh, poet, uh, a model and actress called Guyala Bales from Brisbane. She, we rewrote Scribes Not Many um, for a particular scene. She, off the back of a miscarriage um, backstage, she decides to clean herself up and, and still play at one of her biggest shows to date. You know, she kind of, the show must go on type of scenario and you know, we reached out to Scribe to see if we could use the song, remake it into a female empowerment song. And, you know, rather than how many dudes, you know, roll like this, not many. We, we flipped it to how many queens, you know, roll like this, not many, if any. And when you see the film, it's one of the most favourite scenes of mine where it's a one-take shot from her storming out backstage, on a stage, crying, you know, trying to gather herself before playing in front of thousands of people, her biggest show to date, and she comes out with this banger, and it just, it's full, it's such a full circle moment for me, it's one of my favourite songs that made me want to pursue music, and is a big part of the film. 
That's so cool. And yeah, I was wondering if it was shot at real festivals. When I saw the trailer, yeah, there were so many huge names and I didn't know if you'd got them specifically for the movie or if you were just in the crowd, but it was such a visceral look at what festivals are actually like to be at. I guess for you, Mac, having been on the other side of it for so long on the, um, you know, on the artist side, what was it like for you then to flip that and be there as a, as a filmmaker? Well, I think first and foremost, being there as a filmmaker, there was somewhat less pressure. You know, obviously pre-show, there's always a bit of pressure and, and stress when you're an artist. It was just a different type of stress because this time, you know, we were backed by government funding and, and a lot of just finance. It, there was a, a pressure for me to execute this film coming from Docos as my first drama. So there was the whole thing of like, can he pull it off? You know, it's it's a whole different world. But, um, you know, I guess being through all that as an artist, as a punter, I kind of felt this weird sense of, I was just chilled. I was just like, I felt comfortable. I felt confident. You know, I'd, I'd been in this world for so long on both sides of the fence that um, I just, I'd never felt more ready. And um, I had a, a strong team of experts around me, you know, which is everything in film. Um, solid producers that fought for everything that I needed. Great DOP, great cast, you know, everyone around me was like there wanting to be there and make this amazing. And so... Um, it was a dream come true. It was not only was, you know, all those years ago watching Stand By Me, working at picking that movie apart, wanting to make movies. Here I was making my first feature at an environment that I was obsessed with in, in music. And so half the time I was pinching myself and, and just excited and just high on adrenaline. So, yeah, it was it was surreal. And I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to tick that dream off my uh, bucket list. What a beautiful way to make your first feature film in yeah an environment that's so close to you. I love that so much. I know it's a coming-of-age film, Mac. Have you made it for young people or did you have someone in mind when, when you wrote this story? Yeah, like I think definitely for young people. I feel like Australia's been lacking authentic, diverse, young stories, um, you know, that are a little gritty and more working class than the stuff that we've seen in, pre- in previous years. And so I wanted young people of all you know, walks of life and, and diverse cultures to, to watch this film, be inspired, see themselves on the screen and, um, and get that sense of like, you know, everyone has dreams and we all get there sometimes and sometimes we don't. But I think what's important is surrounding yourself with the right circle of friends to try and help each other achieve those dreams. And that's a lot of what this movie is about. And so I think there'll be a lot of nostalgia for older people who have had their own music festival experiences or even just friendship, you know, ideations and nostalgic kind of memories as well. So I would say it's for everyone, but I particularly kind of wrote it in a way that it would resonate with the young audience. Congratulations, Mac. I'm so excited seeing how excited you are about it. Um, Your first feature film, huge. How do you move forward from this? What does the future hold for you? Um, Look, I, all those years ago, when Russell took me under the wing, you know, he gave me some advice of never bask in the success, you know, in your own success, have the bullet in the chamber ready to fire for your next one. Um, it's something I learned the hard way over the years. You know, I spent months after Bra Boys just partying in LA instead of pitching my next idea to agents. <clears throat> so now, you know, sort of more mature, I'd like to think I'm more mature anyway and um, got my head on and got my, my game game face and focus it's really about 
having the next couple of concepts ready to fire and um, I'm developing a couple of films and TV dramas right now and, and needing to strike while the iron's hot and I'd like to, to stay in this space of coming of age and, you know, try and create something that's inspiring for our younger generation. Incredible. Well, yeah, we'll watch this space. But um, before those come out, we can watch your new movie, Six Festivals, which comes out in cinemas August 11 and then will be available to stream towards the end of August. I'll put all the details to that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. Mac D'Souza, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. <laughs> I had fun too. Um, how would you like to close out the interview? I guess there's uh, one last song I want to throw to. And mm-hmm. this one to me represents... You know, after all the aches and pains, the struggle, the good times, I feel like I'm actually probably in my peak form right now. And, um, you know, I just want to keep hustling. And this song is called Final Form by Sampa the Great, one of my favourite artists. Also had the honour of working with Sampa over the years during her early development years. And seeing what she's achieved has just been incredible. When she dropped this song, it just felt like she was coming out for a fight and it was a walkout song and her fight was to be heard internationally on a global stage and she's done that like a boss and I'm so proud of her and now this is my go-to song when I need to get my hustle on so Final Form by Sampa the Great. Hell yeah, it's Final Form by Sampa the Great on FBI Radio 94.5 chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Mac D'Souza. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com, where you'll also find the full list of songs that Mac brought to the show today and some extra bits and pieces about the things that Mac and I have spoken about, including his new movie, Six Festivals, which drops this time next week in cinemas. That's Thursday, August 11. You can also listen back to this show via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a big shout out to my producer, Tash, for doing all of the research for this episode and to Sam Dover for editing it for me. Do stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. Nah, knock the walls off. Fuck the whole key. We're going hinge the whole door off. I'm still AD. Never forget it. It's life after death. Roll the credits. Credit my maker, take a trip to see Jamaica. Molly spirit with the vapor back design. That's the nature. Africa, the new America. I hope I run this permanent. And this I put my pen in it. Got my land and my permit with it. Bone on my bone, flesh off my flesh. Weightness in me, you can't make me feel less.